Well, I have to begin with a confession. I know today, if you're like me, you didn't come to church to hear a commercial about an organization or even to hear just more information, because you get plenty of that, right? If you're like me, you came to church this morning to encounter your God and maybe even leave a little different from the way you came in because of that encounter. And my words alone just don't have the power to make that happen unless God shows up and speaks something of himself to us. So we're looking for a miracle here, so we better pray. Kind Father in heaven, you promise in your word that you reward those who believe you exist and who earnestly seek you. Lord, we've declared today already our faith in you, but now we want to give our ears and our hearts to you that we might take in some part of your word, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would take root, flourish, and bear fruit so that the world would know that you're good, so that your church would be strengthened and you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. No matter how long I've been a Christian, I find that it's important to ask the following question. Are Jesus and I actually interested in the same things? Does my heart beat fast for the same things that my heavenly Father's heart beats fast for? Or have we developed one of those stale romances, you know, where he has his thing and I have mine? Or on the other hand, could people tell what's really important to my Heavenly Father just by looking at the way I live my life. So I ask myself, what is God really passionate about? What makes his heart beat fast all the time? And do I share those same passions? Now, I know what I'm passionate about. If I put that aside for a moment and ask, well, what is God really passionate about? What would those things be? And today I want to focus on just two. Two of what might be called the more unfamiliar passions of God. And they simply are his passion for the world and his passion for justice. Now, it might seem funny for me to be saying God is passionate about the world and it's unfamiliar passion because you're spending a whole month just focusing on that. So the thing you need to understand is the world that God is passionate about is this great, big, messy, broken world out there. With all of its dizzying disorder, confusing cultures, all these different languages spoke by bazillions of people on all these different continents, this is what God is madly in love with. This is what makes his heart beat fast all the time. This great, big, messy, broken world out there. We know the whole reason for the Incarnation is because God loved this great, big, messy world. Now, what, on the other hand, am I passionate about? Well, to be honest, what absorbs my interest, my focus, and energy and concern all the time is me. I love me. I'm fascinated with me. This morning when I woke up, I didn't have to remind myself, Larry, think of yourself came rather naturally. 
Now, you're wondering, my goodness, should we have had this guy come to speak to us if he's that narrow? So I know I need to expand the borders of my heart out to extend God's love and care and compassion. So I can tell you on a really good day, I can do that with my immediate family. My wife and my two kids and my grandson, Tom, and they'll tell you that's a pretty good day at the Martin house. And maybe they'll circle it on the calendar and pray it comes around again next year sometime. Or maybe I have this larger spiritual experience where I really feel God open the doors of my heart and I can extend love and care and concern and compassion to all those people that I like and who like me and who are like me. You see, this then becomes my world of energy, of focus, of passion and concern. But I have to admit, it's kind of a shrunken and shriveled little world of me and mine. Now, I think the good news is we have a God who finds this rather understandable and natural. But just because something's understandable and natural doesn't mean that it's necessarily godly. So perhaps we could agree on the goal today, and that would be to grow hearts that are more like our Heavenly Father's, that cares more about this big, broken world out there than just this small, shrunken world of me and mine. Now, I think for most of us, this is an episodic journey. And I remember for myself, one of those episodes happened about 12 years ago in this little country in Africa called Rwanda. Now, some of you know this story well. Uh, 12 years ago in Rwanda, this terrible genocide broke out, and 800,000 people were murdered, basically murdered by their neighbors. The Hutu majority just ran after the Tutsi minority. The Tutsis ran to schools and churches like this where they thought there would be protection in numbers, and basically they were hacked to death with machetes and farm implements. Just went day after day after day for eight solid weeks, 800,000 people, three or four September 11th magnitude murders, not just once, but for eight solid weeks, day after day. Now, I remember hearing about this because I was working with missionaries who were serving in the neighboring Congo, and they were telling these, I get these emails, the very beginning days of email, uh, about all these refugees coming across the border telling these stories of horror. And, you know, I would go to look in the newspaper or watch television, and some nights while this was going on, nothing got in our news. Now, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist, when he accepted the Nobel Prize, he gave this speech, and he said, there are two standards by which we judge events in our world. Whether they happen far away or whether they happen near. He said, those disasters that happen far away for us are most commonly tolerable disasters of bearable proportion. Tolerable disasters of bearable proportion. Now that, to be honest, was what Rwanda sort of was for me and for most of us American Christians. But for Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, Rwanda became a very defining time for him. Gary was, in 1994, working at the U.S. Justice Department, and he was put on loan to the United Nations, and he became the director of the U.N. Genocide Investigation in Rwanda. Now, you can imagine what that work was like. He was given a list of 100 mass grave sites, and his job was just to go from grave, mass grave to mass grave, examining the evidence. And what was the evidence? 
It was all these rotting corpses in the mud. I stood in these churches, churches half the size of this, where 5,000 people were just hacked to death, where their bones still lay today. He had to dig through all that. And he said, as difficult as that job was, and it was, he said the harder task actually was interviewing the survivors, particularly the children. And he tells the story of one day interviewing an eight-year-old Rwandan girl who'd actually lay among the dead in a church for two and a half days before they discovered she was alive. And he was sitting across a little table like this from her in that church, interviewing her and hearing her story. And he said, two things just happened. First of all, she was just beautiful. Her eyes twinkled as she spoke. And she would tell this story of horror. And as she spoke, the tension would build up. And so she'd say something to break the tension and make herself laugh. And this beautiful smile would just burst across her face. And it was in one of those smiles he said that something occurred to him that he'd just never thought of before. That God made this little girl. While he was throwing out the stars and piling up the mountains and creating the oceans, he said, wait, I'm going to make this little girl. And that he made this little girl especially to have a relationship with him. And he wanted to have a relationship with this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl so badly that he was willing to send his only son into the world to be tortured and murdered so he could have a relationship with this eight-year-old Rwandan girl. He said suddenly he just realized the cosmic significance of this little girl. Yet he said he also knew from the pink scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just a millimeter of a machete blow from being one of those corpses just rotting outside in the mud. And that 800,000 Rwandans as equally precious to our God could just fall off the face of the earth and it wouldn't really have affected his day or our days as American Christians at all. So at IJM, we have been inviting Christians around the world to try to embrace and show care and compassion and concern to this great big world that God so loves. But let me ask you this. As we engage this world that God so loves, what do you think the world finds the hardest to believe about our Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good. Now, why are they asking that? Because there is just so much pain out there. How did our psalm start off today? Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This is the question the world is asking. Where is God in my pain? Yesterday, 25,000 children in our world died because their parents couldn't give them enough to eat. It'll happen again today. It'll happen again tomorrow. How are those parents supposed to believe God is good? Or the 1.5 billion people in our world who just have no access to medical care. You see, they're not arguing about whether their plan allows them to choose their primary care physician. They don't get a doctor. Their parents know that their children who are sick need medical care, and they know that medical care exists somewhere in the world, but they just don't get it. How are they supposed to believe God is good? Or the millions of children who simply live on the streets of our world. How are they supposed to believe God is good? So, 
what is God's plan for making it believable to a hurting world that he is good? Well, the scripture is very plain on this. In Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking to his followers. That would be us. And he says this, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, notice it doesn't say, you could be the light of the world, you might be the light of the world. I sure hope you people turn out to be the light of the world. It just says you're it. Now, you might want to say to God right now, God, we're, uh, I know no ideas are bad, and we're just brainstorming here, but God, that's a bad idea. You might want to get a plan B. But this is God's plan. The Apostle Paul reinforces this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.20, where he says, God is making his appeal to the world through us. So for the last 2,000 years, Christians have taken this seriously. And we've been trying to make it believable to a hurting world that God is good. So when people don't have a relationship with God, when they don't know about the possibility of a saving relationship with a living God, what do we do? We send our evangelists. We plant churches. We translate the scriptures. We lead young life clubs. Also, people can know about this good God that they can have a relationship with. And when people are sick, we send our medicines and our doctors. And when they're hungry, we give them food. And when they lack shelter, we build homes. And in so doing, we make it believable to a hurting world that God is good. But there is another category of suffering in our world that doesn't happen because people haven't heard the gospel or because they don't have the bare essentials. These are the victims of a man-made sort of suffering that happens when an oppressor comes on the scene. These are the victims of injustice in our world. Now, I think probably as we sit here in church today, the whole concept of injustice is a little confusing to us. I mean, for one, for most of us, injustice is just something that's far off and far from our own experience of life. And yet, for others of us, we feel like we're victims of injustice every day, all the time, don't we? I mean, I uh, live in Washington, D.C., and the traffic is just horrible there. And I have this terrible commute, and so I'm just kind of dodging through traffic and impatient and trying to get home and my wife calls me on the cell phone, and she says, Larry, could you stop at the grocery store? So I'm frustrated with the traffic and making the turn into the grocery store, and I get there, and I get the six items that she wants, and I make a beeline for the express lane, where it clearly says ten items or fewer. But I'm not kidding you. Right in front of me, the guy has 14 items. It's a great injustice, and I want to sue the guy, and I could, because I work at IJM with all these lawyers. Well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is a particular sort of sin. It's when somebody who has more power abuses that power to take from someone with less power the good things that God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their love and their labor. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them, but on the side of the oppressor was power. And perhaps the best biblical illustration of this is the story of King David and Bathsheba. You remember how the story goes? 
King David, powerful king, up in his palace, and he looks down and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. And he just doesn't care that she's another man's wife. He's king. He has power to take her, so he does. And then in a further abuse of his power, he has her husband, Uriah, sent to the front lines of battle where he's murdered. And when the prophet comes to speak to David about this, he doesn't confront him on the adultery, which it certainly was, but he confronts him on the abuse of power, on the injustice. Now, in our psalm today, we, uh, we read about what injustice looks like in our world, uh, talks, talking about the oppressor. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. I think I would have read that growing up in my Baptist Sunday school, and I might have thought, oh, my goodness, I'm sure glad I didn't live 3,000 years ago when things were so bad. I mean, that's a little melodramatic, isn't it? Well, I can just tell you I've gotten out and seen what's going on in our world, and there is nothing melodramatic or exaggerated. This is what our world looks like today. Now, at International Justice Mission, we're a collection of Christian lawyers, criminal investigators, government relations experts, and what we do is take these referrals from Christian workers around the world who are serving among the poor, who send these cases of abuse to us so that we can seek to intervene. And what I'd like to do is give you a crystal clear picture of what injustice actually looks like in our world today by introducing you to three victims we know. And the first is a young girl named Shama, who we met when she was 10 years old. She lives in a rural part of South Asia, and something terrible happened in her family three years earlier when she was seven. Her mother was about to give birth, and it was clear that she was going to die unless they could bring a doctor to their rural village. And the doctor said he would only come if Shama's family had $35 to pay him. Shama's family lives off of about a dollar a day. They had never seen that much money in a lump sum ever. So the only way they could get the money to save Shama's mother's life was to borrow it from the local money lender, and he would only give them that money if the family agreed to sell Shama to him to become a slave. So here's how Shama lives her life, like you see in the picture here. Six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, she sits on one place on the floor, and she has to roll 2,000 cigarettes by hand. If she doesn't roll all 2,000 cigarettes, she gets beaten. She does this day after day after day. And the only way she can get out of this slavery is to pay off the entire debt in a lump sum with interest. And she's a slave, so she only gets paid what the moneylender chooses to give her. And for Shama, these last three years, it's been about 70 cents a week. The family needs that money to eat. So three years later, Shama's actually more in debt than when she started. And she'll be a slave like this her entire life and even pass this slavery on to her children. How is Shama supposed to believe God is good? This is completely illegal, by the way, in the country where Shama lives. But in that country alone, UNICEF tells us there are at least 14 million slaves today. In September of 2003, National Geographic did a special on modern-day slavery, and they said that there are 27 million slaves in the world today, more than were taken out of Africa in 400 years. 
of the transatlantic slave trade. How are they supposed to believe God is good? Or a young man I know from Nairobi, Kenya named David. You would all love David. He's just such a joyous young man, and he plays soccer with the children in the streets, and then on Sundays brings them to church. Just a wonderful guy. And one afternoon, David was walking home when some local policemen who'd been drinking in a cafe and had run out of beer money uh, took their cruiser down the street. And what they did was they just picked up young men off the street and charged. They said, either give us all your money or we're going to charge you with a crime. And David, not wanting to go into a Nairobi prison, decided the best thing to do was to give them all he had, which was about $1.50. Well, the policeman told David he could go, but one of the policemen must not have understood because he took out his service revolver and shot David twice, shot him in the right arm, shot him in the side, and left him there in a pool of his own blood, and they just took off. Well, fortunately for David, there was a medical clinic across the street, so he got himself up wet with his own blood and made his way across to the medical clinic where he started to receive treatment. His arm was so badly damaged that it had to be amputated just below the elbow. And uh, the police discovered that David was being treated, and they came and told the medical people to cease the treatment, which they refused to do. So the police charged David with a crime and shackled him to the bed. And when he got better, they put him in a Nairobi prison. How is David supposed to believe God is good? We know in the developing world between 65 and 85% of those in prison, depending on the country, are there without actually ever having had a trial. How are they supposed to believe God is good? Or perhaps the darkest face of injustice I know is represented by Joy T. Joy T. came from a terribly dysfunctional family with lots of abuse, and one day she ran away from that situation, only to find herself at a local railway station in great distress. And some women noticed her and went to her and talked to her and said, Joy T., come to the city with us. We can help you get a job. Well, she didn't really trust these women, but she didn't know where else to turn, so she agreed to go with them. And on the way, she was given some tea that had been drugged, and she fell unconscious, and when she awoke, she'd been sold into a brothel for about $250. She told the brothel keeper, you can't make me do this kind of work. I'm just 14 years old. I'm going to go to the police. Well, they took Joy T and they put her in a little underground holding cell where for several days they beat her with metal rods and plastic pipes and electric cords. They forced her to drink lots of alcohol, and finally she consented to service the customers. And from the very first day and every day after that, she had to service between 20 and 30 men a day in a city with one of the worst HIV-AIDS epidemics in our world. How's Joy T supposed to believe God is good? Or the million new children like Joy T taken in new to forced prostitution in our world each and every year? How are they supposed to believe God is good? How do we, as followers of Jesus, regard such suffering as this? Well, I think we begin by asking, how does our Heavenly Father regard it? And we can see the answer to that question at the end of our psalm, where it says, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is from the earth may terrify no more. 
we can see that it's plain from Scripture that God hates injustice. He hates injustice, and he wants it to stop. We've actually written a book that I would commend to you all, and you'll find it on the table as you exit the church this way, called Good News About Injustice. And people look at that title after hearing these stories, and they say, oh, my goodness, what could possibly be the good news about injustice? Well, the good news is simply this, that God is against it. He hates it, and he wants it to stop. And for us as his followers, we believe that that matters. But it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? If God hates injustice and wants it to stop, what exactly is his plan for doing that? And it turns out from Scripture, the answer, again, is quite plain. We heard earlier the verse Micah 6.8, a favorite Christian calendar verse. It says, He's told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but that you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I mean, first of all, isn't it great that we have a God who's kind enough to actually tell us what will please him? He doesn't make us guess. And then when he tells us, he doesn't give us a list so long that we can't remember it. It's not like a comprehensive exam in college. It's just a nice, manageable list of three things. And the very first thing on God's short list is that we would do justice. Or Isaiah 117, which couldn't make it any clearer. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. God couldn't make it any clearer that we are his plan for doing justice in this broken world. But when I say that, I've yet to speak to a group who just stood up and cheered when I said that. Because we look at the enormity of this need and the resources we have to bring to bear on it, and we think, oh my goodness. And we could just feel frozen to our seats in despair right now. And it's in times like this that I'm encouraged of a story from the Gospels where the disciples of Jesus found themselves in precisely this same situation. You remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Remember how that goes? Jesus is off in this remote location, and 5,000 people at least have come out to hear him. And he's been talking and talking and talking, and people have been hanging on his every word, and they've run through all their food. So the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you better stop talking and send the people home so they can get something to eat. Well, what does Jesus say to them? He says, no, you feed them. Well, I think it's interesting in the gospel how patient the apostles always are with Jesus. I mean, they're nice enough to explain to Jesus what apparently he doesn't understand. <laughs> they come to him and they say, Jesus, you see, there are 5,000 people here and they're all hungry and it would take a half year's wages to feed them all and we just don't have it on us, so back to you, Jesus. Right? This would be precisely the situation we find ourselves in, right? Right? I mean, we look out. I mean, there's nothing unclear about the mandate that we're supposed to take care of this need, but we look out and we see the enormity of the need, and we look at the resources we believe we have to bring to bear on the situation, and we think, oh, Jesus, all these justice verses and all this nice stuff. It sounds nice in the Bible, but we just don't have it on us, so back to you, Jesus. But what does Jesus say in this story? He simply says two things. The first thing he says is, what do you have? What do you have? Well, they look around and they discover that they don't have nothing. 
they have this little boy, right, with his five barley loaves and two fish. And this is what they put forward to meet the need of feeding 5,000 people. Now, this is where the Apostle Andrew steps into the picture. You remember Andrew? Uh, he must have had something like an advanced degree in public policy from University of Florida uh, because he says this. What are these among so many? You see, this would be me. I've been to college and taken a math course, and I have these advanced degrees. And if you were as sophisticated as I am and knew the history of the struggle and the sociology of it all, you'd know there's really nothing for us to do but sit here in the paralysis of despair. <laughs> but what does Jesus say? He simply asks, will you give it to me? What do you have And will you give it to me? This is the point in our story where Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle. All he's asking from the little boy, all he's asking from you and from me, is that we come forward with just a little bit of obedience so he can do the miracle he yearns to do. And what does he do in this situation? He feeds 5,000 people. I can report to you today that Shama is no longer a slave. We were able to send a team of IJM folks over to South Asia to look into these situations. We'd never done this kind of work before, and we came to this rural part of South Asia, and we documented Shama's case and 10 other cases of illegal bonded slavery. And we took those 11 cases to a local magistrate on a uh, Friday, dropped them off, and made an appointment to meet that magistrate the following Monday. In, in doing these 11 cases, by the way, we uncovered a huge syndicate of children similarly held in slavery. So all weekend long, we just huddled together and prayed, prayed that God would bless this little lunch that were these 11 reports. And one of our group had this crazy idea that in the middle of nowhere South Asia where fewer than 2% are Christians, that we should find some local Christians to pray with. So we searched out this little church on a Sunday evening to go pray with them. And who should turn out to be the guest preacher in that very church that evening? The judge that we were to meet with on Monday. Turns out he's a sincere follower of Jesus, cared deeply about these children, not only freed the 11 but freed 494 people from slavery and into freedom and back into school. And all of this happened because everyone at the International Justice Mission is an absolute genius. (laughs) I mean, did we have a plan for leveraged impact or what? Obviously, we just have a God of justice who's yearning for his people to show up with just a little bit of obedience so he can show us what he can do. Likewise, David is no longer in a Nairobi prison. David actually just finished going to law school and is now working as a human rights worker himself. But I can tell you who is in jail now, the policeman that did this to David, and they're awaiting trial. Now, David was in the, uh, well, we took David's case. Uh, Somebody referred it to us. We were able to investigate and actually prove that the charges that were made against David, uh, the crime that happened, uh, actually happened after David had already been shot and was already shackled in the medical clinic. And we were able to show that the police were responsible for David's injuries. So David is now in law school, and he was visiting us uh, in the U.S. a little over a year ago, and he was interviewed on national public radio. 
And he was asked, David, what are you going to do when you graduate from law school? And with his good left arm waving, even though he was on radio, he said, on the day I graduate from law school, evil will have a new enemy. (laughs) And of course, you don't have to go to law school to give evil a new enemy. This is something that we're all called to do. But this is what it's like for hope to come alive in someone's life. Similarly for Joy T. Uh, Joy T. uh, heard from, uh, told us in her own words that she heard from one of the other women in the brothel about this God named Jesus that might be able to rescue her from her nightmare. She was desperate, so she started praying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. How does Jesus answer such a prayer as that? Well, it turns out that that's what we get to do. Within a week of Joy T starting to pray Jesus, an IJM investigator showed up in Joy T's brothel, got her testimony that we were able to take to a secure police contact who led a raid of Joy T's brothel, and we were able to get her into a place of Christian aftercare where she came to know Jesus as her personal Savior. Now, I think for some of us, sometimes the idea of Jesus being our personal Savior is quite an abstraction. But for Joy T, there is nothing abstract about it at all because she saw the body of Christ. That would be us. Show up in her nightmare and get her out. Now, she was so emboldened by her experience of rescue and of coming to know Jesus that one day she heard we were going back into her place of horror, and she said, could I go with you? I know the secret hiding places. And she actually helped us rescue this girl, Kalindi. And Kalindi said, let's go back. I know where they're hiding more girls. And what you're going to see in this next... Uh, bit here, is you're actually seeing these very young girls, and this is not a brothel, but this is a hiding place. When there was a tip-off, these young girls were spirited away and stuffed into this hole in the ground, and you're seeing girls that are 14, 15, 16, 17 years old who are literally coming out of the darkness of their bondage and into the light, all because IJM could show up for Joy T, and Joy T for Kalindi, and Kalindi for these girls. I often ask myself, why did Jesus feed the 5,000 the way he did? Why didn't he just do that manna thing all over again? You know, manna, back to the teaching. Be so efficient. I think Jesus fed the 5,000 the way he did for just one reason. He wanted one little boy to have a very cool day. Can you imagine that little boy going home to his mom? Mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. Now, we're theologically sophisticated, are we not? Enough that we know that Jesus really didn't need that boy's lunch. But did he just love him so much that he wanted to show him what he could do with his obedience? On the other hand, just imagine what a small day that little boy would have had that he'd just taken his lunch around behind a rock and eaten it. My conviction today is this, that as followers of Jesus, we're just not having as much fun as he would want us to have with all that he's been giving us. We have been given so much more than five loaves and two fish. We've been given our salvation. We've been given the abiding presence of Jesus. We've been given our fellowship. We've been given the gifts of the Spirit, 
the power of the Spirit, and then on top of that, the less important things like our wealth and our educations and our networks of influence. And I just don't think we're enjoying them as much as God would like them. We're not using them for the things that truly matter to him. What does this all mean for you here at Orangewood Presbyterian Church this morning? Well, I think the first thing is that you need to realize that this is not about international justice mission or about a mission Sunday. This is about something that's very deeply rooted throughout the Word of God. Page after page, you'll read about justice. And too often, we just pass over those justice passages like they were just nice verses. We don't realize that when God gives us a vision for ministry, he also gives us the power to do it. So I hope you reread these passages in Scripture that pertain to justice. Maybe just start by going back over Psalm 10 again or Isaiah 1. But know that this is deeply rooted in Scripture. It's not about this Sunday. Become a prayer partner with IJM. Go to our website, ijm.org. We send out a prayer email every Thursday. It tells what we need prayer for that week. And it's not so, so much a matter of discipline as it is of desperation. We just need God to show up and bless the work that we do. The very next Thursday, you'll get another email that tells you what actually happened as a result of your prayers and the work of IJM. So pray with us. Come to our global prayer gathering April 20 to 22 in Washington, D.C., and just spend the weekend praying with us. You can even pay for the rescue the poor can't afford for themselves. This May, there's actually going to be a fundraising benefit for IJM here in Orlando, and our president, Gary Haugen, will be speaking. Maybe you can help us make that dinner a success. Um, lastly, I would ask that you pick up one of these cards on the table out there and sign up to be a part of what we are doing around the globe to provide justice for the oppressed in God's name. Let me just close by saying I am a very bad member of my local gym. Yep, it's true. You look at me, you wouldn't think that's true, but it is. I really like going to the gym. I like feeling healthy. But one of the things I really love about the gym is people watching. First of all, there's like all these very interesting costumes that people wear. But the group that, uh, that captures my attention the most are the bodybuilders. You know the people I'm talking about? Huge muscles, you know, necks and arms and legs and chest, just huge and powerful. I think their earlobes even have muscles. And they have this section of the gym where they make everybody else feel you don't belong there, unless you're one of them. And I look over at them. I'm on the treadmill. I look over at them, and I, I see all that muscle, you know, these, like, huge necks and arms and legs and chest, all that power and strength. And I ask myself, what's it all for? And you know what it's for? It's for posing and the only time all that power and strength comes to any real practical use is there's like a crisis in the kitchen and the jam jar is stuck and they pop open the jam jar. <laughs> My prayer for us today is in a world filled with so much hurt and so much pain, we don't use all that God has given us for trivial things 
like opening jam jars. Would you pray with me? Kind Father in heaven, today we do indeed pray for the rescue that the poor so desperately need. And we pray that you would do miracle after miracle on their behalf as your people come forward in obedience. But Lord, we also pray for our own rescue. We pray that you would rescue us from all things fearful, all things petty, all things trivial and small, that we might be found useful for the things that truly matter to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.